My name is Lene McClellan, and I'm a salon owner in Chelsea, Michigan, and the creator of Radioactive. I've been inspired by the people I get to talk to every day to create a platform for those in and around our community to tell their stories, share what's important to them, and help us uncover what makes us human. Visit RadioactiveChelsea.com to see how you can get involved. Welcome back for the second season of Radioactive. I want to take a brief moment to thank all of my guests and my listeners for a very successful first season. Your participation and your feedback have been enlightening and encouraging, and I am so proud to say that I have over 300 loyal listeners, and I feel like together we can be really impactful and fulfill the mission of Radioactive Chelsea. The mission of Radioactive is to enlighten and inspire and most importantly, humanize Chelsea. To kick off the second season, I get to chat with one of my very best friends, Paul Schisler. He's a local business owner, former president of the Chamber of Commerce, and a very active Rotarian. Paul has agreed to walk us through his mental health journey, beginning as a child of a parent who has PTSD to becoming a parent of a child who has mental health challenges. So I'm very excited to introduce to you my first guest of my second season, Paul Schisler. Well, hi, Lene. It's always a pleasure to see you. This is a little weird for me. Uh, I did warn you before we got here that most people are afraid to put a microphone in front of me because this could go on for days. Let me have it. <laughs> All right. And I'm not charging for this, so I'm, I'm willing to move forward. Uh, you know, I, I think I'll start somewhere in the middle. Um, And say that when I was about 16 years old, my family, we spent our time uh, for holidays and those kind of events with our family. So that meant going to the aunt and uncle's houses. Um, And one holiday, Thanksgiving, I think it was, we were at my Uncle Arnold's house in Bay City, Michigan, my Aunt Ruth and Uncle Arnold. And the parents, the, the adults, they would be playing cards, typically euchre and some other weird game called schmear or something, sort of euchre-like. And I was over uh, looking at a, this complex, huge train set that my uncle built. He did it as a hobby. He would build these big, complicated train sets, sometimes 20 by 15 feet, all mounted on plywood and mountains and tunnels and all this crazy stuff. And, and I went over to get uh, a new, another glass of 7-Up, and we were playing some kind of card game with my cousins. And my uncle looked at me, and he said, it's too bad you never knew your dad. <laughs> and I go, oh, Uncle Arnold, it's, you know, I got news for you. That's him over there. And my dad was sitting right there 15 feet away playing cards. He said, that guy over there that you know, is the guy that came back from Europe after the war. None of us know who he is. We'd never seen him before. And that stuck with me because I'd always wondered why my dad was so conflicted, why he would sometimes go for five or six or seven days and not speak to any of us, Uh, why he would yell at my mother why he was so grouchy. Uh, For seven or eight years when we were growing up, we'd put up a Christmas tree and we're all trying to be happy. And Christmas morning would come and I had three sisters and a brother. 
and we would go to the Christmas tree and there's some presents. I mean, we were pretty poor, so there wasn't a lot, but there were a few. And uh, my dad would go in the bedroom and close the door and he wouldn't come out. And so my mother would be sad and we'd all sit and stare at each other. And then she'd try to make the best of it. And we would open our the few presents that we had because, you know, we didn't have much. Um, and then a few days later, we'd take the Christmas tree down and we'd put his little pile of presents on the floor where the Christmas tree was. And finally, maybe around January 4th or 5th or 6th, my mother had had enough. And she would say, Ned, you get out here and you sit down in front of this family and you open your damn presents. And at the time, I really didn't quite get it all. You know, now I sort of look back at that and I think, he left for World War II, and he was gone from uh, his wife, my mother, and my oldest sister, Judy, for 798 days. And he never had leave. He never came home. And right from Fort Lewis, Washington, he went to uh, the East Coast. He got on a French uh, passenger ship, which, I mean, not like a cruise ship of today. And he and his whole group, the 788th Field Artillery, went to England and they spent some time there, and then eventually they shipped across the English Channel uh, to uh, Belgium, and they spent the next year chasing Nazi German soldiers back to Germany. And uh, after the war was over, he uh, stayed, and they they set up like kind of like MPs. They they were the police of the villages, and they were assigned to a couple different villages to kind of keep the peace and get the German citizens to understand the war really was over, the Nazis weren't going to hurt him anymore, and that sort of thing. And then eventually he came home. But uh, that day my Uncle Arnold said, it's too bad you never met your dad. It really, over the last 40 or 50 years of my life, I started to finally figure out what all that meant. You know, it was PTSD. But when those guys came home from the war, there was something available, but generally it was stop complaining, get over it, you're lucky to be alive, get on with your life, shut up and stop whining. There was no counseling, there was no, no uh, PTSD, there was nothing like that for these guys. And I think the luckier ones were willing to go to the VFW hall and share their pain and their stories with the other guys who were willing to come to the VFW Hall and talk about it. My dad said he went once. Didn't like all that crap and he wasn't gonna talk about it and didn't wanna be there and he was gonna do it. They told him, buck up and get on with your life. But he never really did in that sense. He never got over it. He was haunted by it my whole life uh, until he passed away a couple years back, he was 94. Um, and in his last days, when he was at a point where he really needed hospice care, I went to the VA hospital in Saginaw and registered him. He had never been there. He had the right to go. And when I signed him up, he said, in, his lower, in a lucid moment, he said, well, I always thought that was just for uh, officers. He, honest to God, didn't know that his whole adult life after the war, he could have gotten really inexpensive medical care, much cheaper prescriptions and all of that sort of thing, had those B VA benefits available to him. And of course, if he'd gone to the VFW hall and talked to his, to his uh, 
peers, I guess you'd call them now, he would have known that and he would have had maybe a different life and maybe would have had a chance to take uh, advantage of some of the services as limited as I think they were then. But anyway, he spent the last six months of his life at the VA hospital in Saginaw in their palliative care unit. He was angry and sullen, um, disappointed. Uh, the last couple months of his life, he was really angry. He screamed at me, he screamed at my sister. Um, the very last words out of his mouth were horrific things that I wish my, I wish my sister hadn't had to have heard. She spent the last 15 or 20 years of his life taking care of him and his wife. My mom had died a long, long time ago uh, of cancer when she was 55. My dad remarried three or four years later. But as they became infirm, my sister lived closest to them and she took them to doctor's appointments and got their groceries and took such good care of them. And his last words to her were so vile and hurtful. And I know at some level, he appreciated her and loved her for all of the things that she did for him, but he sure didn't do a good job of expressing that. What was your dad's relationship like with your mother growing up that you can recall? Well, you know, they, uh, the fighting or arguing that they did was always, you know, behind closed doors in their bedroom. I think they tried really hard to get along. Um, I think my mother suffered greatly at his silent, we called it, our family had a name for it, we called it, he's giving us the silent treatment. And that would happen four or five times a year from three to five to eight days where he literally would not say a word to us. He would acknowledge us, he'd get up in the morning and go to work. He was a truck driver and he'd come home at the end of the day, he'd sit in silence and eat his dinner and uh, he'd go read the paper and go to bed and wouldn't talk to us. In between that, you know, there were good days. I don't mean to make it sound like he was lost in, in the ozone and never talked to us. He, he tried. Um, when my brother and I were in the first grade, he bought us matching bicycles. I was in the first grade. My brother was in the third grade. The bikes were way too big for us. We had to stand up and pedal. We, could barely, we couldn't reach the ground. We'd have to kind of jump up on him, get a running start. But eventually, we grew into him. Um, I always felt sorry for my sisters. It was crystal clear to all five of us that my brother and I were somehow better than they were. It just drove me crazy. Um, and of all, my brother was the absolute favorite, and we all knew it. Um, but he tried, you know. I, I know he was trying, but he was, he was suffering. I was angry with him for a long time. Um, an interesting story was when I was 15, I was bigger than him, taller and stronger. And in my whole life, he had never told me that he loved me, never said those words to me. And I heard my mother down the hall 
say it to my sister. They were having some issue. My sister was in middle school, and my gosh, she was wearing too much makeup, and the principal kicked her out, and was all, everyone was horrified that she wore eyeshadow or some damn thing. You know, this was in the, in the early 60s, and, you know, maybe the hippies were just getting going and all that. And my gosh, all my sister wanted to do was look pretty. And she put on a little makeup and got kicked out. My dad was mad at her, and my mother, I heard her say, Joanne, it's okay, I love you, and we're going to work through this. And I heard that, and I was standing in the kitchen with my dad, and I said, why don't you ever say that to me? And he kind of looked at me, and he said, what do you mean? Say what? And I said, I don't remember you ever telling me that you love me. And, and then I kind of got upset. It was sort of an emotional thing, and something came out. It, like, opened a door or something, and, and I pushed him, I literally grabbed him by the shirt, pushed him up against the, we had this big brick thing was the center of the house where the fireplace was and everything, and I pushed him not too gently up against that, and I'm like nose to nose with him, and I said, you tell me that you love me right now. And he looked horrified and and upset and uh, uncomfortable and Maybe, maybe embarrassed, I don't really know, because I was so mad and so like out of control, I, I, I don't really, I can't characterize everything, but he somehow stumbled and mumbled, uh, I love you. And then I let go of him and I left. The next time he told me he loved me, that was about 1966 or 67, I was in high school, maybe, maybe a freshman or something, and Maybe a, maybe a sophomore. The next time he told me was about 2002. I have this company. I sell machinery to the car companies and aerospace and medical implant manufacturers, that sort of thing. So I was spending a lot of time in Saginaw at the GM plants, steering gear and places like that. And I would always stop by his house because it was right there just a few miles south of Saginaw. And I would stop and help him. I fixed the lawnmower that particular day. And I'm getting back in my truck, and I'm starting to back out, and he came up to the truck and tapped on the window and kind of motioned for me to put the window down, so I did. And I said, you know, I'm always apprehensive around this guy and always just trying to have some kind of a relationship with him. And I put the window down. I said, what is it? You know, maybe not in a mean way, but I'd said, what is it? You know, I had to leave. I was had an appointment. And he, he said, I, uh, um, I, I, uh, I love you. <laughs> you know, and I just like, I said, you what? <laughs> he said, somebody has to break the chain. And he walked away. What did that mean? Well, I, I'm guessing that his father never said it to him once in his whole life. I got it twice. <laughs> once I demanded it, you know, in sort of a, a rough and violent way, and the second time he volunteered it. So we were making some headway, apparently. I was going to ask you how, how you think that your upbringing has affected the way that you parent, but I feel like now I know. It's, you've made it your mission to break the chain. I probably have told each of my children and my stepchildren, 
I've probably told each of them 15 or 20,000 times that I love them. I've hugged them hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, I've praised them every time I ever see them. Even they're all in their, well, five of them. We have a, Ann and I were on our second marriages. We've been married 30 years now. And uh, she had three kids, three girls. I had two boys. And then we had the oops, surprise, where did you come from? <laughs> surprise <laughs> child. So we were the like kind of the Brady Bunch. I don't mean to be too rude, but for a long time we called them the Brady Bunch from hell when we were having our worst days with them. But um, our kids are, we have a 27-year-old and then four kids in their 30s and our uh, one who's 40 now. And to this day, when we talk to them, we always start and end conversations with how much we love and adore them and support them and how we miss them. But, you know, Anne and I did a very difficult thing. You know, our first marriages uh, didn't work out so well. Um, and we found each other and we put a bunch of kids together that, quite frankly, didn't want to be together. Um, so we made this blended family and... Boy, there are a lot of days I think if I knew then what I know now, we never would have done it. But we did it, and we struggled a lot. And it was hard to put those kids together and make them be in this new family because all of them wanted their old family back. But they weren't going to get that. And here we are, and so we've got to make this work. And I don't know if it was because of the stress of that or just because of how they were wired when they came into the world or other relationships they had in their life. But all of our kids struggled to varying degrees. And I'm not sure I would quite label it mental illness, but certainly it's just, it's, it's the toughness of just being a person. Life isn't easy. Life is really, really hard. It's hard to figure out and it's hard to navigate and negotiate relationships and it's hard to figure out what on earth your peers are laughing about. You're standing in a group with other kids and they're talking and everybody laughs and you're standing there going, uh, <laughs> faking a laugh because you don't know what the hell they're laughing about because you don't get it. You don't understand the social cues. You, you don't have that ability. You can't figure it out, and then you start to feel isolated. And, and yeah, I'm describing a couple of our kids. And they feel isolated, and they feel lost, and then they feel angry, and then, and then maybe they start doing drugs to self-medicate, and pretty soon they drop out of school. Not every school, and I don't think very many schools, while they all mean well, I think they're really... Most schools are great at providing a place for children to learn who are in the middle of the bell curve in that top sweet spot where you're an A or B or C plus student and you have a stable home life and you're reasonably a happy kid and you have some idea of dreams and goals of your life and you can picture your future. But you slide down that bell curve either to the right or left and now you're not quite like everybody else. You're further out on the edge. There aren't as many of you. You don't play, you're not on the football team, and you're not a cheerleader, and you're not in the marching band, and you're not in, you don't, you can't draw anything to save your soul, and you're not musical. You're just this person, and you don't know what you want to be, and you don't like school, 
and the teacher doesn't like you because you won't cooperate and you won't sit still and you won't do everything all the good kids are doing and and your self-esteem goes down the toilet and you start losing your grip and you start to be scared and you start thinking, how am I going to get through this? Maybe I don't even belong here. And we've seen that happen to kids we know. We went through it with one of our kids pretty severely. One of our kids got kicked out of every school he ever went to in his life. He got kicked out of daycare when he was four years old. And the director of the school said, well, the teacher has 22 kids. And she teaches one kid with one hand and 21 kids with their other hand. It's not fair to the other one, 21 kids. He got kicked out of kindergarten. He got kicked out of elementary school. He got kicked out of middle school. He went to Howe Military School at $22,000 a year for five years. And he got kicked out of there. Then he came back and tried going to Pioneer in Ann Arbor and didn't quite make it. And a few years later, he got a GED. That same kid, when he was 12, was in the child psych department at the University of Michigan, an inpatient program. He was there for one day. It was supposed to be a week. And the next day, we got a call, and they said, you need to come in here. We need to see you. So we went in, and we sat in a small conference room, and the head of that department, a child psych at the University of Michigan Hospital said, uh, you need to take your son home. There's nothing we can do for him. He is damaged in a way and at a level from something very early in his childhood that we have no treatment for. If you're lucky, he may be able to stand to be alive. But you need to be prepared and think about, there's probably a 90% chance that by the time he's 18, he'll be dead or he'll be in prison. That's probably what's going to happen because that's what's happened to almost every kid like this that we've ever seen here. So this is tough business. This is tough business being a kid who's lost. It's tough business being a parent who has a kid that you love with all your heart. And no matter what you say, and no matter what you do, it doesn't seem to matter. You can spend $200,000. You can take your kid to the Cleveland Clinic for a month to a special program there for kids like this. And they resist treatment. They're suspicious of doctors. They think all therapists and psychiatrists, especially psychiatrists, think they're all drug dealers. They accuse you and the psychiatrist of turning them into drug addicts. And they blame you for every rotten, horrible thing that's ever happened since they were born. They look at you and jump up and down on the couch and scream and spit and rage at you and tell you that you wish you, they wish you were dead 
and that they hate you and they hate your guts and they wish that you had never had them? You know, so where do you go with that? Where do you go with that? And then you have this other sweet kid who comes in and hugs you every morning and says she loves you. And she's in show choir and she's in band and they play soccer and, and they're happy to be alive. And right down the hall in a different room, you have a kid who wishes he was dead. And you, you get afraid. You get afraid to answer the phone. Is this going to be the call from the police? Saying they found your son? Or is it going to be the call from the police who say your kid's in jail? Because he had a thousand bucks worth of dope in his pocket? They caught him selling pills to his friends at school? The ones he didn't take for himself so he could self-medicate, so he could stand to get up and breathe that day? We've loved all our kids since the day where they were born. I've told them thousands of times that we loved them. And we hugged them and we praised them. And we bought them things. And we bought them piano lessons and, and took them to concerts and plays and took them to New York and to Chicago and to Detroit and showed them the world. And we, you know, we took art lessons with them and we bought them paint and crayons and puzzles and books. And I read to them every night before they went to bed. But some of them don't turn out okay no matter what you do. And, and so, you try not to blame yourself. And you try to, try to be happy. And you keep on loving them. And you keep watching them make horrible decisions. And hurting themselves. And abusing themselves. And you love them and you try to hug them. And you try to get close to them and they push you away. And you keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And you try to get them to go to therapy. And they hate therapists because they, they're just in it for the money. They just want your money. And they talk to you for a few minutes and they never understand a word you say. They try to tell you what's wrong with you. Or they ask you stupid questions. Questions that have nothing to do with that's actually wrong. They don't know what they're doing and they're all a bunch of crooks and all they want is the insurance money. And you go, no. These people dedicate their lives to try to help people who are in trouble and who are hurting and in pain and who are lost. But they have families. They want our money because they have to pay their bills. They have to eat food. This is how they get money, by helping people. They're not bad people. They're helpers. So they don't believe that. They're lost and they're hurt and they're scared. There are a lot of times I've thought about uh, suicide, not like really thinking about it like actually ever doing it, because I'm a proponent of taking every single breath you can possibly get. We're all headed down the road toward dying. Nobody gets out of this game alive, and it's a big adventure, and there's a lot of fun to be had if you know how to look for it. If you can just stay a little bit cheerful, if you can be a little more positive than negative, 
There's so much opportunity in this life to have fun and be happy and love people and receive love from people and have great adventure and fly around in little airplanes and ride dirt bikes and go skiing and mountain climbing and hiking in the woods and swimming in the pond and all these things, whatever it is you love to do. Play your fiddle until the cows come home. Be the best bowler you can be. Whatever it is you love. Some people can't get there. They don't see the beauty in every breath. They're so lost and so afraid and so, so hopeless. So as a community, as individuals, as parents, as teachers, as police people, as firemen, as EMS workers and nurses and doctors and lawyers and gas station attendants and you know, highway crews and all the people that do every job in this world that I don't want, that lets me do what I love to do, everybody, we need to find the kindness in our hearts and the patience. And we need to give people a break and stop being so goddamn critical of everybody else just because they're different. They got a big nose. They got big ears. They're black. They're purple. They're green. They're gay. They like boys. They like girls. They're short. They're tall. They're fat. They're blonde. They're bald. I'm bald. Do you have any idea how many times in my life I've been teased just because my hair fell out when I was 20? We just need some kindness in this world. Kindness and love and supporting people that you disagree with about their politics, you, you don't like them because they don't believe in God or they go to a different church or they don't go to church at all or you think they're a little hypocritic because they go to church on Sunday and then you see them being mean on Thursday. Give them a break. This is not easy. Being a human in this world with all the pressures and all the questions and all the self-doubt and all the criticism and all the pain and all the diseases and illnesses, mental or physical, Everybody is struggling, and everybody needs a break. We need more kindness. We need more patience. We need more forgiveness and understanding from one-year-olds all the way to people in their 90s who are passing away at UMRC. Give people a damn break and stop being so hard on yourselves and stop being so hard on everybody else. Paul, thank you so much for joining me for my first episode back from my second season of Radioactive Chelsea. I appreciate you. I love you so much. Love you too, Lene. And I love this town. <laughs> if anybody would like to leave any feedback or get a hold of Paul, please do so through my website, radioactivechelsea.com, or you can send an email to radioactivechelsea at gmail.com. Please be sure to subscribe from our website, and tune in on Apple Podcasts.